0: And uh, we found Israel in a difficult situation. And uh, I'm sure many of you at times in your life, I know I have, have found yourself in a situation and you've wondered, how did I get here? How did I end up in this situation? How did I end up in this circumstance? Maybe you even have looked at somebody else's life, somebody that's close to you, a friend, or uh, someone maybe you just haven't seen in a long time, and you go, man, how did they get there? The last time I saw them, it seemed like they were doing really well, and now they're not doing so well. Maybe it's even a good thing. Maybe you're celebrating an accomplishment. Maybe you've got, landed a, your dream job. Maybe you've gone on a bucket list trip. Maybe you've become a parent or, for the first time or a spouse, and you're just looking back on God's provision and just kind of marveling on how you ended up in that situation. But there are times in your life where maybe you've found yourself in kind of a pit. Maybe you've found yourself doing things that you told yourself you would never do. Maybe you've battled an addiction. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you're in a cycle of like giving into sin, and you're just not sure how to get out of it. Sometimes we don't know how we got into that situation. Maybe it's a series of circumstances Maybe you were recruited into that situation. Now I know we've got quite a few vets in here and you probably have, most of you were recruited into the military. Some of you might've been recruited into your current job. Recruiters do like a really good job of telling you all the good stuff, but maybe they leave some of the details out, right? Maybe the stuff that's not so good. Um, In dental school, I was recruited into the Air Force. And uh, when the recruiters came by and told me how great it was to be in the Air Force, I kind of believed all, all the good stuff, you know. And at 23 years old, I picked the Air Force because they told me that they built the base around the golf course. You know, they built the golf course first, and the golf course was really good. And then they, would like, put the airstrip over here, you know, and I like golf. So I was like, man, airplanes are cool, and I like golf. So I'll go into the Air Force. That was my 23-year-old reasoning. And I quickly found out that the recruiter, some of the things he told me were true, some of them not so true. Uh, He told me I'd get good training. That was true. He told me I'd get to wear a good uniform, a cool uniform. That was true. He told me they would pay for a lot of my school. That was true. Uh, But then he told me, like, when you go to officer training school, you're mostly just going to learn how to wear the uniform and salute and you're probably just going to like play golf and hang out. And so I even brought my golf clubs with me when I went to Alabama to go to officer training school. They were like in the back of my 4Runner. I was wise enough to not put them on my back when I walked in to check in because I'm pretty sure they would have beat me to death with a putter if I did that. But that was not the experience. It was like true, you know, military training, like it should be. Uh, And then they also told me I would never like get deployed or if I did get deployed, I probably wouldn't be in a war zone, or I probably would be on like a real cushy base in Kuwait or something like that. So in 2007, I found myself getting off of an airplane in Baghdad, and a couple of Army guys picked me up and told me, hey, you're going to come in with us, and we're going to be living on not an American base but an Iraqi base. And by the way, keep your firearm locked and loaded because... Probably 20% of these guys that you're going to be training are al-Qaeda. Al Qaeda. So they, they probably want to kill you. So I found myself in that situation thinking, how did I get here? What have I gotten myself into? I just wanted to wear a cool uniform and play golf, get some experience. As we look at chapter 8 of Amos here this morning, we see the nation of Israel facing the imminent judgment of the king of the universe. The all-powerful king of the universe, his wrath is about to be poured out on this nation. And Amos's words, everything that we've read so far, and everything that we've read here in chapter 8, these words should be terrifying. And we would ask the same question of Israel, like, how did they get here? So as we've looked at Amos, we see that Amos was just this simple shepherd. He, he wasn't a man of great privilege, he wasn't a man of great influence, yet he's delivering God's message to God's people, and he probably would have thought to himself, how did I get here? In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8, we see that the destruction of Israel is here and now. It wasn't far off, it was, it was imminent, it was coming soon. And we know from history that within a generation this nation that he was speaking to would be destroyed. They were, many of them would be killed. The rest of them would be dragged off into slavery, into exile. And Amos describes this vision that he has from the Lord, this vision of a basket of summer fruit. And at first we think, like, summer fruit, like, what is that? What does that have to do with the end? It's, is this like something we're going to draw? You know, I think that art class. But at first, you know summer fruit, the Hebrew word for summer fruit, and the Hebrew word for the end are almost exactly the same. And when when they're pronounced, they sound very similar. Another way that this summer fruit kind of symbolized the end is that the summer fruit was kind of the final crop in the harvest in the Israeli agricultural calendar. They've found these calendars and uh, they've seen that. like, And uh, so It was the finale. It was the end. In verse 2, the Lord proclaims through Amos that the end has come upon my people Israel. And he says, I will never pass by them again. These words should have been terrifying to all who heard. We kind of get this picture of like an anti-Passover. We think about the first Passover when the Lord, the angel of death, like passed over the Israelites in Egypt. That was a part of their deliverance. But now he's saying that you will not be passed over this time. There will be blood. Verse 3 declares that the song of the temple shall become wailings in that day. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. This isn't a pretty picture. So Israel has come to an end, and we were kind of asking that question, how did they get here? And I think it's important just to review a little bit about where Israel has been up to this point. We can go all the way back to the beginning. We can go back to the fall, to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they disobeyed God, and we see that sin enters into the world, but we know that from that moment, God had a plan. He had a plan to restore everything back to, as it should be, everything back to himself. And as we travel through the Old Testament, as we travel through the book of Genesis, we see that this one true creator, God, that he's setting apart a people for himself. It kind of begins with this nomadic herdsman. It begins with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes this promise to make him into a great nation to make him into a great people who will bless the world. God then miraculously gives Abraham a son Isaac, and he goes on to have twin sons Esau and Jacob. Now through deception, Jacob receives his father's blessing and goes on to have 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's son Joseph, through an act of evil, is sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt. God, as we see throughout Scripture, uses evil things for his ultimate good, and he does this with Joseph, and his family is preserved through a famine because of this. The family ends up in Egypt, and although they were initially blessed in Egypt, their descendants end up as slaves in that nation, and they'll suffer there for over 400 years. The people cry out to God, and God again miraculously steps in to deliver them. He provides a leader for them in Moses, and he performs many, many miracles to help deliver them out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea, they enter into the wilderness, and God delivers his law to his people. He tells them that he will dwell with them, that he will will lead them, that he will be their one true king. He promises them a land for themselves. But we see that throughout their history, the Israelites are stubborn. They're disobedient. They keep rebelling against their king. And as a result of their sin and as a result of their idolatry, they wander in the land for 40 years until they're finally given the promised land through God's Miraculous intervention. Even though they had the one true creator, God, as their king, their pride and stubbornness and all of that, they, they, they wanted an earthly kingdom. They wanted a kingdom that looked like everybody else's kingdom. They wanted an earthly king. God gave them up to their desires, and, he, and the kingdom of Israel was established, and it kind of reaches the pinnacle through David's son Solomon. And at this time, they're prosperous. They're a secure people. They're a kind of a powerful nation in the world. They're living the dream. A lot like the American dream that a lot of us are living in here. They're prosperous. They're secure. So when we look back on Israel's history, we ask, like, how did they get there? We see over and over again... That, there's a, this, that, that God has been patient with them. He's been gracious with them. He's been merciful to them. That he was their God and they were his people. And that he continually restored himself despite of their disobedience. But we see a different picture of the nation of Israel here in verse 4 through 6. It looks nothing like the grace and mercy of, that they've been shown by God. They've kind of become the opposite of that, right? They've become greedy oppressors. Verse 4 says this, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So in these verses here, we get that like a clear picture of how greedy and oppressive they have become. In verse 4, we see that they trample on the needy. They like, we get this picture of almost grinding them into the ground, of like annihilating them. In verse 5, we see that these people aren't necessarily like secular rebels, right? They're not like communists. They're not like atheists. They're actually religious people who are doing this oppressing. They observe the ritual, relig- rit- ritual like religious rituals. But in verse 5, we see that it's really just in practice only, right? They can't wait for the Sabbath to be over. They can't wait. They want to get it over with so they can go back to making money, right? So they can go back to short-changing people. They go through the motions, but really their heart's just full of greed. The Sabbath really is just an inconvenience to them. And I think we have to check ourselves here when we read this passage, when we read this part of the passage, and just think, do you, like, do you ever struggle with that? Is coming to worship the Lord on the Lord's day just, a box that you're checking off? Is it just a way to make yourself feel better? Is it something that you're just doing so you can really get back to doing what you really want to do? Making money, having fun, being comfortable. And I think we need to check our hearts on this, ask ourselves what our true motivations are, and repent. Repent if we need to. We see in verse 5 and 6 that they're not only greedy, but they're cheaters, right? They're using dishonest means for their own personal gain. They're selling bad products. They're selling this worthless chaff with the wheat, and they're doing that so they can bump up the price so that it weighs more. But the chaff was worthless, so they're trying to get more money for a poor product. The ephah was a basket that was used for measuring and the shekel, was kind of the standard unit of weight. And so basically what they're doing is they're messing with the weight, they're messing with the scales, and they're just straight up cheating people. We get a, people, a picture of a people really with no integrity, no business ethics. I think these verses should cause us to examine the way we operate, the way we operate outside of these walls. If we're Christians... If we're placing our faith in Christ, if we're following after our Lord, then His ways should be our ways. We should be striving for that, and that should permeate every aspect of our lives. It should certainly go into the workplace. Are we treating our customers fairly? Are we treating our employees fairly? Are we treating our employer fairly? Are we getting paid for eight hours and only working five, right? Are we paying people what they deserve? And I think we just really need to look at that and say, hey, man, if my life outside of these walls in the workplace just looks like everybody else, then that's probably not a good thing, right? It should look different. We need to seek the ways of the Lord. We need to seek compassion, justice, honesty, And certainly integrity in all of our dealings. And as we see through Amos, God certainly cares about that. It's not something that he doesn't care about. He certainly cares about it. So because of Israel's sin, because of this oppression, because of this disregard for the poor, because of this disregard for God's ways, for God's truth, for God's word, Amos is letting them know what's coming. We see that in verse 7 through 10. In verse 7, we see God kind of swear on himself for the third time in this book, and he's saying that he will not forget these transgressions. God is not a God who can simply sweep sin under the rug. If he's going to remain holy and righteous, then sin has to be dealt with. He can't forget sin. Sin has to be paid for. Justice has to be done. And Amos is telling the Israelites that God's wrath is coming. And it's going to be poured out like an earthquake, like a devastating flood. It's going to be total destruction. There will be darkness. There will be mourning. There will be death. And verse 3 tells us that there's going to be silence. And I think that's the most devastating judgment of all. Look at what Amos says in verse 11 through 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint of thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Now, I would say that these are the scariest words in this passage, and some of the scariest words in all of Scripture. And they don't address, like, physical harm, right? God's not talking about a physical famine here. He's talking about withholding his presence... From his people. Withholding his word and truth. Silence. And we talked about Israel's history. We see that they were a people who were set apart. They were a people who, up to this point, were the only ones who were given God's word. They had these prophets like Amos that were actively proclaiming God's word to them in real time you would think that they would have been eager to listen to the God who had delivered them so many times. The God who had delivered them from slavery. The God who had given them a promised land. The God who had made them prosperous and secure. But they didn't want to listen, did they? In in chapter 7 last week, we saw that the priest Amaziah was actively trying to shut Amos up. He was trying to like run him out of town. It's almost like he had his hands in his ears and he was doing the la-la-la, you know, the thing that toddlers do sometimes. They didn't want to listen. But they were people who liked their religion, right? These weren't, like, secular people. They were people who liked their festivals. They liked their traditions. They liked going to Sabbath services. They liked the standing it gave them in society. They could kind of puff their chest out and look down on other people because of their religion. It made them feel better about themselves. But the truth is they hated God's word. They weren't indifferent to it. They hated it. They hated God's truth. And we see that by the way they treated other people. By the way they treated the poor, by the way they treated the oppressed, by the way they did business. And so God in his righteous judgment is not only going to wipe them out, he's going to withdraw his word from them. So as we look at these kind of final uh, verses here, I think there's some things that we can take away from it. One is that God's word is our only true nourishment. It's the only thing that gives us true life. The second thing I want us to see is that a person's opportunity to respond to God's word, even though God's word is eternal, that opportunity to respond does not last forever. And the third thing I think we need to see is that any substitute for God's word will never satisfy. So, I think it's important for us to see, and I think we can clearly see through these last four verses that God's Word does bring life. It brings true nourishment. So, the judgment is going to bring a famine. Verse 11 tells us this isn't a physical famine. They still have food and water, but it's a spiritual famine. And that spiritual famine is going to leave these people staggering. It's going to leave them wondering. It's going to leave them searching, but they can't find any satisfaction. They can't find any nourishment. And we get a picture here of the young and strong not being able to withstand it. It says they're going to faint because of this spiritual thirst. So what about us when we read these passages? Is this just an issue the Israelites had? What about the church today? Do we really see God's word as true life-giving nourishment? Do we love it? Do we see that without it we will dry up and faint from thirst? Or can we just kind of like take it or leave it? Are we indifferent to it? Or do we hate it? I doubt there are many people in here. Now, I know, like, intermittent fasting is a big deal right now. Some of you maybe are hardcore and you do, like, a 24-hour fast. But I doubt there are many people in here who have gone an entire day without any food or water, maybe one or two. But you've probably not gone an entire day without any sustenance. But how many of us, I would say all of us, all of us, have gone many days without God's Word. And the Bible tells us that's foolishness. It tells us that we will dry up without it, that we will die of thirst. We want to be a church that's anchored in God's Word, that's anchored in His truth, and that's why we do things the way we do them. That's why we have study guides, so that you can be in God's Word day by day. We want to make that a central part of our life as a church, a central part of your life as individuals. God's word is vital for us. It's life-giving. It gives us nourishment. And the Israelites had forgotten that. They had rejected it. Let's not be people like that. The second thing I think we can see is that God's word, even though it's eternal, even though it will last forever, your opportunity to rightly respond to it doesn't, right? The Lord tells us that the day when judgment has come, people will hunger and thirst for God's word, but will not be able to find it. Some people hear God's word and they just say, man, it's not for me right now. Maybe later on in life. Maybe when I'm older, because I really don't want to give up these certain things in my life. I need to get right before I respond to God's Word. I need to get myself together. I just don't have time for it. Man, that's a dangerous game to play. That's a dangerous game to play, because the longer you live in your sin, we know that sin can harden the heart. And it can harden the heart to a point where you can't respond. We also know that none of us are promised even the next breath, much less years and years and years. And so many will die having heard God's word, having heard God's truth proclaimed, but never rightly responding to it. And at that point, Scripture tells us, throughout Scripture, it tells us it's too late. So I do believe that God's word comes with a sense of urgency a sense of urgency to respond to it. For those of us who have, who've placed our faith in Christ, it's a sense of urgency to tell others about it. There's urgency in that. The Israelites failed to see this. There's no sense of urgency. God's word is being proclaimed. They're chasing the prophet out of town. And for many of the Israelites, it was too late. Their hearts had been hardened God's judgment was coming. So I think it's important for us to see that today is the day. Today is the day we respond. We don't want to wait. The third takeaway from these verses is that a substitute for God's word will never satisfy. In verse 14, Amos speaks of the guilt of Samaria and the way of Beersheba. And really, he's just referring to these false Religions, these false worship that is propped up throughout the nation. There was a lot of that taking place uh, at this time in Israel. The people were worshiping these false gods, these gods who had no power. And he's just kind of pointing to the futility of worshiping these gods in light of offending the one true God with all the power, with all the power. And I think we just need to see that although our idols look different today. Most of us aren't worshiping golden calves. Our idols might look different, but we do do the same thing. We do the same thing when we're looking for ultimate satisfaction in things outside of God. And these can be good things, right? It can be our jobs, our marriages, our bank accounts, our, our children. But like Tim Keller says about idolatry, he said, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. We need to know that those things will never ultimately satisfy if they're in their improper place, if they're in the place of God. So what do we, you know, kind of just summing everything up, finishing off, what do we take away? Because, you know, this passage, chapter 8, it's a difficult passage. Amos is a difficult book to read. It can be dark at times, and uh, it's hard sometimes to see the light shining through. And I think if we just had Amos chapter 8, if that was like all the revealed word from God, if that's all we had, then you should leave here in fear, without hope, because the truth is this, the truth is that we all look like Israel. We're not studying this and looking at these people who are being judged like we can't relate to them. Because I think if you're just really brutally honest about who you are, about your struggles, about your propensities, then you see that you're probably a person who has the propensity to seek comfort over service, to be prideful, to mistreat those in lower positions than you, and to worship idols. But thankfully, for us here this morning, we know that there is the rest of the story, right? This isn't all we have of God's word. Amos talks about this earthquake that's coming with this judgment. He talks about this eclipse, the darkening of the sun. But we know that there was another day that the sun would be blacked out. There was another day when the earth would shake. And on that day, salvation was made possible for us. It was made possible for you and I. It was the day that Christ took on the sins of all those who would trust on him. It was the day that God poured out his wrath, not on Israel, not on the sinners who deserved it, not on you and I, but on his innocent son. And he did that to make a way for us, to make a way that we could be reconciled to him so that the price of justice could be paid. God doesn't forget sin, but he made a way for it to be paid for. So if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith on this work, on this work that Christ did, We see from this book in Amos, we see from all of Scripture that a day is coming where it will be too late to turn to this free gift of grace, this free gift of mercy. And I think there's an urgent call for today to turn to Christ. It's not for tomorrow, it's not for years from now, it's not for next week, it's for today. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, there's an urgent call for us to tell the world about it to love people as we should, to seek the ways of the Lord, to be a light in this dark world. Because we don't want to reach the end of our lives, whether that be today, whether that be 80 years from now. We don't want to reach the end in terror, in hopelessness, because we've ignored this plea to repent of your sins and turn to Christ. You don't want to wonder with your last breath like, How did I get here? So I urge you all today to turn to Christ, to live in hope, to live in freedom, to live in peace, and to not live in fear. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who deals with sin. You are a God who is holy and just and righteous father we acknowledge that we are not we are prone to living as the israelites lived father help us to see that our only hope is through christ give us the strength and courage to live out your ways in this world forgive us when we fall short Pick us up and and help us continue on that road following you. We can only do it through your strength and power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.